All right, we are in John chapter 17, verses 20 through 26. We believe that this is the inspired word of God, that his spirit breathed this text to life, and this is a word from the Lord. So, John chapter 17, verses 20 through 26. I do not ask for these only, but also for those who will believe in me through their word, that they may all be one, just as you, Father, are in me and I in you, that they also may be in us, so that the world may believe that they have sent me, that you have sent me. The glory that you have given me, I have given to them, that they may be one, even as we are one. I in them and you in me, that they may become perfectly one, so that the world may know that you sent me and loved them even as you loved me. Father, I desire that they also whom you have given me may be with me where I am, to see my glory that you have given me because you loved me before the foundation of the world. O righteous Father, even though the world does not know you, I know you, and these know that you have sent me. I made known to them your name, and I will continue to make it known that the love with which you have loved me may be in them, and I in them. Heavenly Father, you are a good God. You have graced us with your love. And Lord Jesus, you're here. You're in this place. Your spirit is alive and well in your people. Would you lead us today? Would we hear from you today? We need to hear from your word. We need a word of God, a word that is alive, a word that is on fire. So Lord, would you help me to be a help to my brothers and sisters today? Would you grant me uh, the grace of speaking a word from you through your precious word by your spirit. May it be so. Help us to see how beautiful and how glorious Jesus is today. We love you, we need you. We pray this in the name of Christ. Amen. You may be seated. A few weeks ago, after one of the sermons that I preached on Jesus' high priestly prayer in John chapter 17. I was talking with one of you in in the foyer, um, and this person asked a question. It was a savvy question. It was an insightful question. It was a challenging question, and it was a caring question. And so this gentleman said to me, you know, Heath, there was a a line in the verse that you read, a line that that Jesus said, but you didn't address it today. In verse nine, Jesus said he wasn't praying for the world, but he was praying for his apprentices. And this this is a bit troubling. What's, What's going on with that? It sounds a little bit unloving. Those are the kind of questions that we should ask scripture. Honest, searching, wondering, raw, troubling questions. It's good to ask those hard questions. Jesus can handle them. 
the scriptures can handle them, and we should handle them as well. Now, I want to address that question today because that's exactly what our text addresses. Jesus addresses this at the end of the high priestly prayer in John chapter 17, which we just read, and he addresses it through this topic of unity, a unity from heaven for the world, a unity that comes from heaven, and it's for the world. Now, there is a word for our world, unity. Unity. Unity just might be the most alien, fantastical, fiction-sounding word for us in 2023. It's like the polarization knob has been turned to 11 in our lives. We, as a culture, glory in us versus themness. We increasingly define ourselves by what we are against. Identity politics have society breaking up into little bits and pieces as we struggle for power, as we forcefully express ourselves and demand to be validated by other people in a culture that is shot through with individual expressivism. The election of 2020 is like a sledgehammer to the growingly brittle glass of societal relations. And the brokenness of race relations breaking apart all the more amidst all the violence. Friendships, families, institutions, churches, yes, even churches, have been radically fractured by politics, by COVID, by masks, by vaccinations, by news feeds. Many sanctuaries and many pews have been divided right down the middle by markings of red and blue. Unity, unity. Unity is a word that is sounding more and more like unicorn or utopia lately. Sounds nice. It's only alive in dreams. There's an article that was published in the Atlantic from May of 2000 or May of 2022, and it's called "The Doom Spiral of Pernicious Polarization." <laughs> How's that for a term? The doom spiral of pernicious polarization. It cites a study by the Carnegie Endowment for International Peace that gathered data from 202 countries, and that data came from over 200 years. And here's a summation of the author's conclusion. It's this. No established democracy in recent history has been as deeply polarized as the U.S. We are a deeply divided people. We live in an age of disintegration, of disintegration, the integration of things being pulled apart in every way, shape, and form. And I, I know that's a pretty bleak flow of words. That's the dark diagnosis, but there's a bright remedy. So let's listen to what Jesus has to say, and let's take hope in the words that he prays. And we're gonna see that unity is far more than mere agreement. It's deeper, it's better, it's brighter, it's warmer, it's stronger than mere agreement. So what we're gonna do is we're gonna walk slowly along the path of the scripture because maybe when I was reading it, your eyes were glazing over a little bit going, I have no idea what any of that means. Uh, it's, it's a winding, challenging passage, so we're gonna walk through it slowly 
to excavate the meaning that is in it. Now, in order to uh, understand the import of this prayer that Jesus is preaching, uh, recall that this is the prayer that Jesus prays on Thursday night before he marches into the darkness of Good Friday, before he climbs onto the cross and goes into the ground for a dark Saturday. Speaking of that, what would you pray for those you loved if you knew you were going to die tomorrow? What would you pray for those you loved if you knew tomorrow was your last day? I guarantee you it would be something that's really important to your heart, and it's really important for those people. What does Jesus pray for? He prays for unity. I wonder how often we pray for unity. How often we are throwing out prayers to our creator that says, would you unify us? Is that in our mind? Is it in our heart? Well, it's in Jesus's. So let's look at verses 20 through 21. He says, I do not ask for these only, he's talking about his apprentices that are with him, but also for those who will believe in me through their word, that they may all be one just as you, Father, are in me and I in you, that they also may be in us so that the world may believe that you have sent me. Okay, let's unwind this. I do not ask for these only. Jesus has been praying for his apprentices, those that were with him 2,000 years ago, those that were walking along uh, the, the shore of the Sea of Galilee with him, those that were hanging out with him, those that were sitting down and, and eating hummus and bread and drinking wine with him, those who are in his very presence as he prays. That's who he's talking about. He says, I do not ask only for these. Okay, so we need to understand who those these are. But he also prays for those who will believe in him through their word. What does this mean? Well, it means Jesus prays for those who will believe that he is Lord through the words of his apprentices. So who's he talking about? Us. This is astounding. Jesus prays for us. Jesus has prayed for you. Now this should give us boldness. This should give us great confidence and this should give us a great humility. It should give us confidence because Jesus is for us. The Father hears his son's prayers. All will be well. It should give us humility because it teaches us that we need the prayers of Jesus to live this life called the life of faith. We need the king of all creation interceding on our behalf. We can't do this Jesus life without the spirit of Jesus. We can't do this thing on our own. We, own. we need spiritual empowerment. We need to live a life of unceasing prayer. So that should put us on our knees in great humility. Amen. Now, he says, believe through their words. What is Jesus talking about here? Well, he knows the future church. He knows us. He knows believers all down through the corridor of history believe in him because of his word. He knows his apprentices will go on to, to make more and more apprentices of Jesus, and he knows that they will pen the words of the New Testament that testify to the fact that he is king. So this is referring to the scriptures that they are going to write. We believe in Jesus through his word that has come to us through his apostles by the power of his spirit. And so to follow Jesus is to know him. It's to listen to him through 
his word. That's why there's this big old thick Bible that's open up here every Sunday. The word is our authority on who he is, who we are, and how we are to live in his world. That's why we're not only a people of unceasing prayer, but a people of scripture meditation. Now, with that said, what does Jesus pray for the future church? What does he pray for us? It says that they may all be one. Just as you, Father, are in me and I in you, that they also may be in us so that the world may believe that you have sent me. Man, he prays for unity. For Jesus, unity is, is no mythical unicorn. It's no fictional utopian ideal. Rather, it is the great reality at the heart of reality because our God is one. And so Jesus teaches us a bit about unity here as he prays for it. So let's see what he can teach us here. Uh, first, he prays that his apprentices will be one with each other as he and the Father are one. So what does this mean? Well, Jesus prays that we would have relationships with each other that are like his relationship with his Father, which is a mind-blowing thing when you start to tease out what in the world does that mean? He wants us to have relationship with each other the way he has had a relationship with his father for all eternity. And what is that relationship? Well, it's a relationship of abiding love and abounding delight. That's what he wants for us. A relationship that is carried along by the spirit of unity, the spirit of intimacy. Second, this unity between believers, this unity that we have among us is originated, it's sourced from being united to him. So we are vertically united to God and because his spirit now lives within us, we are united to one another. True unity with others comes from spiritual union with God. And when Jesus is not the center of our vision, when we are delighting in him, uh, when we are delighting in him in, in a way that's less than delighting in something else, we are going to fracture, we are going to break apart. Seek ye first the kingdom of God and all things will be added to you, he says. And when you seek him first, when you delight in him more than anything else, this is where, where unity begins to flourish and grow in our lives and, and in our communities. And so... Jesus is the magnet that pulls together all the iron filings that are scattered around in our lives. And with that said, I think we need to clarify that unity is not mere mental agreement. Okay, unity is not mere mental agreement. It is not simply some social consensus. Unity is an abiding mutual love and delight. Unity is an abiding mutual love and delight. The deep unity that overcomes disagreements, dissimilar preferences, opposing opinions, the deep unity that overcomes frustrations and internal frictions and conflicts, the deep unity that unites human beings in being truly human is the Jesus love. It's the Jesus love. He holds us all together. There's this verse in Colossians, 
It's, it's one, of my, one of my favorite. It hurts my brain and, um, and it hurts my eyes to look at it because it's so bright, but it's gorgeous. In Colossians 1, verses 17 through 20, we get this brilliant truth about Jesus. And he, Jesus, is before all things, and in him all things hold together. And he is the head of the body, the church. He is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, that in everything he might be preeminent. For in him all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell, and through him to reconcile to himself all things, whether on earth or in heaven, making peace by the blood of the cross." There's a word for us. Man. The way towards greater unity is the way of seeing Jesus as greater than everything else. Now this isn't to say that we can't come to agreements on on certain things, that there isn't some kind of secondary, so to speak, unity in a number of issues. But it is to say that the master unity, the only thing that holds us together when all our frail unions of philosophies and ideologies and affiliations and organizations and clubs and tribes and Facebook groups fail, the only thing that will hold us together is Him. His love unites us organically at the very level of our essence. Now, we live here in the Tri-Valley. We live here in, in Livermore Valley. So, so we're all familiar with the vineyards that adorn our hills, right? So, so we see these incredible vineyards when we drive by, and we see these vines coming up out of the ground, and we see the vine kind of T or Y, and we see all the little branches that come off that. And we know that there is a life that is flowing in that vine, And that life that is in that vine goes into each one of those little branches. And so the same life that's in this branch is in this branch because it's connected to the same vine. There is an organic unity to that living thing. Well, let's go from that image, from that illustration of the vineyard to the stage. Consider a bunch of tuned musical instruments. There's a famous quote by A.W. Tozer. I love it. Here's what Tozer says. He says, Has it ever occurred to you that 100 pianos all tuned to the same fork are automatically tuned to each other? Has it ever occurred to you that 100 pianos all tuned to that same tuning fork, they're all tuned to one another, not because they were trying to be tuned to one another, but because they were tuned to the same frequency, to the same fork. They are of one accord by being tuned, not to each other, but to another standard to which one must individually bow. So, 100 worshipers met together, each one looking away to Christ, are in heart nearer to each other than they could possibly be were they to become unity conscious and turn their eyes away from God to strive for closer fellowship. That's brilliant. See, our goal isn't so much to be unity conscious, it's to be Jesus conscious. For when we are Jesus conscious, we are seeing the Father, and we are being shaped into a people of love and a people of joy. And that's what Jesus now gets at in verses 22 and 23. The glory that you have given me, I have given to them that they may be one even as we are one. 
I in them and you in me, that they may become perfectly one, so that the world may know that you sent me and love them even as you love me. Now Jesus talks about his glory. What is Jesus' glory? Well, Jesus' glory that he's referring to here is his delight and his love in the Father and his unity with him that he might be able to display the beauty, the goodness, and the truth of his Father. And that glory, that love and delight in his Father, he has shared with us as his followers. He will unite us to himself by putting his very spirit within us. And so Jesus glories in the Father and apprentices of Jesus glory in Jesus, delight in Jesus, and therefore delight in the Father, all one life. And you could say glory, to simplify it, if that word is a little bit confusing or religious-y sounding, glory is that which we delight in. Glory is that which we delight in. That which we see is beautiful, good, and true. That which we ascribe worth or value to. So here's a lesson in unity that Jesus is teaching us. Our unity is found in what we glory in. Our unity is found in what we glory in. Uh, A local cycling club, they delight and value, they delight in and value cycling, right? So they're up early and they're working their bodies hard because this is a great delight to them. They glory in it. A fan page of Tolkien and Lord of the Rings, right? People are going to this fan page. What are they doing? They're marveling in, delighting in the world of of Middle Earth. CrossFit fanatics, right? Delighting the pain, the sweat, and if it's a good day, the blood, right? A fitness. They delight in these things. And these are great. These are great. But at the center of all these things, at the very center, is the beautiful, true, and good God. And that means until our delight is in Him, our unities will always be temporal. They'll always be fading, brittle, not lasting. You'll get an argument with some other fanboy on that fan page for Lord of the Rings, or you'll, you'll bounce from, from that CrossFit because you don't like the way someone's leading it. All those unities will go so deep because the deepest part of the humanity of of human beings is our image bearing, right? It's the deepest part of us. And so we need to be in union with with our God. And and this, by the way, is where divisions come from. Where do divisions come from? Oh, one of my friends asked me that this week. Where do divisions come from? And divisions come from competing glories. Divisions come from competing glories. Glories. We delight in and ascribe worth and value to an infinite number of things. And we give our lives to those things. The book of James talks about this in chapter 4 where he talks about how, how conflicts come about and wars come about from these passions within us. From us ascribing worth to different things in different orders and trying to get those things that we love and, and fighting others for it. So, Competing glories creates all these divisions in the world. This political party has this glory. They ascribe worth to this, but this political party has has this glory. They describe worth to the, the opposite. And so then they hate one another and fight against the other. On this note, by the way, I don't want to miss the opportunity to say that I'm not talking about our deepest unity being um, a denomination or a theological affiliation. 
Let me explain this real quick. Um, because there, there's many in this world, you might say, who, who would glory in, delight in denominational membership or a theological tribe or following some Instagram famous preacher, teacher, or leader, but these things aren't delighting in, in God himself. These unities aren't enough to bear the weight of the longings of the human soul. So don't confuse various religious-oriented affiliations with glorying in Jesus. Don't confuse various religious-oriented affiliations with delighting in Jesus because you can delight in some affiliation or some theology and there's no love of Jesus within you. So these are not the same thing. And our aim here, by the way, at the church is not to have people glory in the fact that they are a member of Valley Community Church. We glory in Jesus. That is why we are here. Our glorious unity is that we love and delight in Jesus. And we're members of this great global church, the body of Jesus all over the world. We just happen to be here locally with these brothers and sisters living this life out. Now, um, this takes me back to that question that the gentleman asked uh, a few weeks ago, the savvy question. Why doesn't Jesus pray for the world earlier in this prayer? Doesn't he love them? Um, The answer is, well, actually, now that we've gotten to the end of the prayer, Jesus does pray for the world. He prays for the world by praying for the church. This is fascinating. He prays for the world by praying for the church. Verse 23, he says, So that the world may know that you sent me and love them even as you love me. So that may they be united like we are united. May they be one as we are one. So that the world might know how much you love them. Not how much you condemn them because they aren't morally amazing just like all the people who are sitting in the pews, but that the world might know you love them because your love is in my apprentices. And now they are ambassadors of that love to a world that is aching to be loved. A world that is so broken. So that, so that, so that. See, what's the effect of our vertical unity with God and our our horizontal unity with brothers and sisters? The effect is that the love of God radiates out into a dark world. It's so that the world might know that God so loved the world that he sent his one and only son that whoever would believe in him would have eternal life. And so Jesus is praying for his apprentices that they might truly enter into this joy. And by doing so, he's praying that the world might come to know him and then therefore know his father and know how much the father has loved the world because Jesus has come into the world to create for himself a people that will be a shining light so that all the world might know the glory of God. It's a brilliant plan. He knows what he's doing. And so my friends, Jesus prayed for you. He prayed for us. He prayed that we would be a living, breathing display of the unity, glory, and the love of God. 
Is that what the world sees the church as? Maybe sometimes. I hope it's how the world sees us. I hope it's how the world sees, sees you. But here's the deal. Here's what all this means. If our unity is to be, to be a display of God's love in the world, that means that our unity must be visible. <laughs> if they're going to see it, it means it has to be visible. It must be embodied. It must be carried out in, in our lives. So this means that our unity isn't in words alone. Love words. Gospel must be preached. I'm a word guy. It's not just in structures of thought. Our unity isn't locked in our heads. It's not just emotions set within our hearts. It means that deep Christ-born unity is enfleshed. It is embodied. It is seen in our actions. It must be seen in our habits and our practices. The world must see that inner unity in how we live and how we treat another. And what this does is this drives that unity down into the details of our everyday lives. Do you know that when you choose not to grumble against your brother or sister to someone else, you are choosing unity and love and you are showing the world who God is? Do you know that when you choose to not trash talk your spouse when you're with a group of people, that you are showing the the integrity of who Christ is? You are showing the love and graciousness of the Father that the world needs. Do you know that when you lay down your preferences, when it comes to church meeting times, when it comes to music styles, when it comes to preaching styles, when it, when it comes to whatever preference, carpet color, you name it. Do you know when you lay those down, you are saying the love of the Father seen by the world is more important than the little things that mean something to me in this moment, my finite flesh. Do you know that when we serve one another, carry one another's burdens, get down on our knees and serve each other's children or share our gifts of music or share our finances, that we are participating in the deep reality of life, the unity and love of God. When we refuse to let a hurt or an offense or a miscommunication lodge between us and when we press in with loving truth to address that situation, we are participating in the cosmic display of God's love. I had a moment this week where uh, a brother leaned into me uh, and said, hey, um, I need to talk with you. Uh, We had an interaction earlier and it left me feeling funny and I I wanna talk with you about it because I don't want it to grow into a, a wedge between us. Kind of left feeling uh, uncared for, can we address it? And that was beautiful and loving and courageous of him. And, and we did, we, we addressed it. I had been going a million miles an hour. It was a very uh, hurried life this week, I admit. <laughs> Lord helped me in that practice. And, and I didn't communicate uh, well, just out of, out of sheer um, exhaustion, and I heard him. And so what could have been a wedge of division or a seed of bitterness became a bond of unity through grace and forgiveness. And now there's a closer relationship. And Jesus was that deep bond that pulled us back together. 
Because there's, there's, when we delight in ourselves, you know what we often want to do? We want to be like, that was on you. That wasn't my fault. I've had a busy week. Because I delight more in how I feel about myself than actually coming into union with somebody and bowing before the Creator saying, we need your help. All right, I got to move on. We are a people on mission. And the way we go about our mission is loving Jesus and loving each other. Now, in summation of this prayer, Jesus weaves it all together at the end, and it's just beautiful. So verse 24 through 26, he says, Father, I desire that they also whom you have given me may be with me where I am. Jesus wants to be with you to see my glory that you have given me because you love me before the foundation of the world. Oh, righteous Father, even though the world doesn't know you, I know you. And these know that you have sent me. My apprentices know that I'm from you. I made known to them your name, your character, and I will continue to make it known that the love with which you have loved me may be in them and I in them. So in the end, When all things come to their fulfillment, Jesus wants to be with us, that we would truly dwell with him and each other forever, that we would finally see the beauty of of who he is, because now we see as though it's twilight. Now we see as though we're looking through a shadow, blurry visions, but we will behold in full, high definition the glory of who Jesus is, and we will be like him, conformed to his image. And all of this, our great, bright, and forever future is because the Father has always loved the Son. The Son has always loved the Father. And his plan is to bring us into that glorious union. And so again, I want to push on this. What this means is that unity is not mere mental agreement. It's deeper than that. It's more profound than that. Unity is not simply some social consensus. Unity is an abiding mutual love and delight. And Jesus prays that we know experientially the same love, that that organic love lives inside of us. The love of God comes to us through Jesus to be on display to the world that they might know he is the love of God in the flesh. Jesus is our tuning fork. He's able to tune all our diverse and discordant, broken, addicted, selfish, needy, pain-riddled lives. He can tune all these to him that we might make glorious songs, that we might sing to a world who needs to know the beauty of the choir master. Now, I want to end by doing this. There's a psalm that speaks to this unity, and, and I believe it's, it's in Jesus's mind as, as he's praying this prayer. Jesus had the, the book of Psalms just in his bloodstream, And I believe that some of the things he's saying in this prayer are coming from the Psalms. So Psalm 133, listen to this. It's short, it's powerful, it's just beautiful. Psalm 133 says, Behold, how good and pleasant it is when brothers dwell in unity. It's like the precious oil on the head running down on the beard on the beard of Aaron, running down on the collar of his robes. It's like the dew of Mount Hermon, which falls on the mountains of Zion, for there the Lord has commanded the blessing, life 
forevermore. This demands a few words of explanation to open up the beauty that's locked in it. Uh, the poem has two, two key images, okay? Two key images. One, anointing oil that was poured on the high priest's head. It mentions Aaron. Aaron was the high priest. Uh, this might sound like a weird thing to us, but just imagine this. Imagine you're standing in the, the brilliant burning sun of the desert in the Middle East. And imagine there's somebody in white robes with jewels on it. And imagine you pour olive oil all over their head and it drips down their face and their beard and their robes. What happens to that person standing in that sunlight? They spark light. That oil catches light and they shine because the priest was an anointed one who was to be uh, the mediator between mankind and God. So he's saying to dwell in unity, it's like, it's like the priest with the oil that just goes on his head and it runs down and it gets all in his beard and it goes all the way down to his feet. That's image number one. Image number two of unity is the dew up on Mount Hermon, the, the mountain to the north of Israel, where all the water came, collected, and went through the porous rock and then went into the rivers and rivulets and, and fed the land. And he says, it's like the dew from Mount Hermon yet falling down here on Mount Zion. It's a strange conflation of these two things, but it's something from above coming below and feeding the world. You seeing it? Are you seeing where this is going? In short, unity comes from above. Unity is a gift from God, and then it flows here below. It comes from above, and it flows here below. Unity is a grace from heaven. It's not worked up. It's not white-knuckled. We can't do it on our own. And then that unity spreads out, it radiates, it flows to bless the world and to extend the boundaries of the Garden of Eden, so to speak, to take the flourishing garden in the middle and take the wasteland and convert it so it's full of life. That oil that starts on the head and runs and drips and oozes all over the face and the beard, the shoulders and the chest, the arms and the legs and the feet spreads out. It's, it's fragrant. It's full of herbs and spices. So that means anybody who's standing within, I don't know, yards and yards and yards of that priest who's now shining in the light, they're smelling the aroma of life. It spreads out. And that dew, that moisture from the high mountaintops in northern Israel flows down and waters all the land. So does the imagery now make sense about unity? If unity is mutual love and delight, how do we get that love and delight? How do we get it? How do our stony hearts become soft flesh? It took a priest to change the human heart. It took a priest to turn us from enemies of God and enemies of each other to lovers of God and brothers and sisters. And it took a priest whose head was drenched, not in sweet herbal anointing oil, but in the thick, viscous blood that flowed from his own brow on down to his feet. It took a high priest from heaven to come down to a mountaintop and climb onto a cross 
that the waters of life might flow from him to the wastelands of this world, that an alienated people might become brothers and sisters. Because of Jesus, we know the love of God. Because of Jesus, we can be as one as he and the Father are one. And because of Jesus, we can behold this unity and let it flow. And so, as a community that's committed to knowing this Jesus and spreading his love, let us pray for unity as a gift from above, not some mere mental agreement. For when we pray for the unity of the church, we are loving the world because it's how the world gets to know the love of the Father and the Son. So may we be like a hundred pianos. May we put aside all the trying to tune to one another and and trying to to people appease. May we be like 100 pianos, all tuned to the King of Glory, making music, composing symphonies, and singing songs of love for this world to know our God. Father, we love you. We so need you. Our divided and fractured world needs your healing, nail-scarred hands. So would you unite us, not in mere mental agreement, but would you unite us by the gift, that organic, true love of who you are now living in us by the power of your spirit. Teach us what that means in all the contexts that we live in this week. Teach us what that means as a mom or a dad with toddlers. Teach us what that means in gritty detail in, in our workplace. Teach us what it means in our own private inner world life, our thought life, the things we say and do. Drive it into every fiber of our being. Would you be honored, Lord Jesus? Thank you for your love and grace. It's in your name we pray. Amen.